Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has consolidated power in Egypt and further eroded the rule of law and human rights in his country. And now Egypt is facing yet another inflection point that could further ensconce al-Sisi in power. At issue is a series of constitutional amendments that would effectively make al-Sisi president for life. On the line with me to discuss recent events in Egypt is Amy Hawthorne, the Deputy Director for Research at the Project on Middle East Democracy. After years of crackdowns on political opposition, she explains why Egyptian politics is poised to enter a potentially more dangerous phase. We kick off with an extended conversation about the circumstances that brought al-Sisi to power, including the tumultuous events of Egypt's Arab Spring and its aftermath, we then discuss the implications of recent moves by LCC to further consolidate power. Amy Hawthorne and Andrew Miller recently co-authored a piece in Foreign Policy about LCC's efforts to recast his regime as a personalist dictatorship. We recorded this conversation a few days before it was announced that al-Sisi was to visit Washington, D.C. on April 9th. So if you are listening to this episode contemporaneously, Amy Hawthorne does a very good job of setting the scene for this visit between Trump and al-Sisi. Before we jump into this conversation, I want to make a plug for my premium subscription offerings. I feel like I I don't advertise this enough. I don't plug this enough, but it is a great way for you to both support the show, to help me do what I do, to help me keep shining a spotlight on undercovered global stories, and also uh, for you to earn rewards in the process. Probably the most attractive of these rewards and benefits is access to my Don's Digest Global News Clips service. This is a roundup every early morning that I email out to subscribers. Most people who subscribe to this get this through their institutions. Key institutional subscribers include the UK House of Commons, USAID, and a number of NGOs. It can be yours uh, if you make a recurring monthly contribution to the show. And there's a link to do that on globaldispatchespodcast.com, or if you're listening on your phone, uh, you can just follow the links in the description field of this podcast episode, and I'll show you how to become a premium subscriber. Thank you. All right, now here is my conversation with Amy Hawthorne of the Project on Middle East Democracy. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So, Abdel Fattah Hassisi 
is a career military person. He actually even attended military academy in high school. So he was in the army his basically his entire life until 2014 when he was elected Egypt's president. But he really came on the scene prior to that when as minister of defense in Egypt, he led the military coup against uh, President Mohamed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood in July 2013. So he led the military ouster of Mohamed Morsi. And then after Morsi's uh, overthrow, General Sisi, who at that time was not yet president, but he was widely understood to be the new leader of Egypt. So although he didn't become president formally until uh, May 2014. From July 2013 until that time, he was basically the power behind the uh, Egyptian government and sort of Egypt's uh, de facto ruler. So, so, so can you talk a little bit about like the circumstances of his, I don't know, dare we call it a coup? Uh, I know that was a big, uh, a big controversy yeah. at the time, whether or not to call what um, LCC did to oust Morsi as a coup. It, it sure looked like a coup to me. Um, but can you just talk a little bit of, about those circumstances, too? Because sure. I feel like how he came to power has a lot of explanatory value in how Absolutely. he's conducted himself ever since. Absolutely. So I'd even back up just a couple of years before Morsi's overthrow in the summer of 2013 to the Egyptian uprising in January and February 2011 and the overthrow or forced resignation of Mubarak in 2011. This is when... Pres uh, President el-Sisi, uh, now President el-Sisi, really came into the consciousness of at least some Egyptians. Uh, he had spent his entire career in the military, as I said. He was not a public figure. Uh, I think he was, you know, extremely well-known and, and a rising, sort of rising figure within the military, within the armed forces, but he had no public profile. At the time that Mubarak was overthrown, uh, Assisi was serving as the minister or the head of uh, military intelligence, which is, you know, a very important position in the Egyptian government. And as such, he was a member of the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces. So he was one of the generals, one of the uh, Egyptian military leaders who, who actually technically forced Mubarak out in February 2011, and who then ruled the country. Uh, they were the acting executive authority of Egypt from uh, February 11th, 2011, until uh, June uh, 2012, when Mohamed Morsi was elected president. And the reason I mention that is because during that time, during those, those years after Mubarak's overthrow and before Morsi's overthrow, President Sisi became known to more Egyptians as kind of a... Um, uh, an ambitious political figure. I wouldn't say that he was a very widely known figure, but he did take on more of a role. Uh, foreign officials were meeting with him, of course, in his capacity as a member of the Supreme Council for the Armed Forces, head of military intelligence. And uh, he became a bit infamous among uh, many in Egypt, many pro-revolutionary Egyptians, when I believe it was in maybe March or April 2011, uh, there were ongoing protests in Egypt, even after Mubarak had been overthrown. Um, many demonstrators wanted sort of not to have military rule. They wanted a, a real transition to democracy. And there were ongoing protests and in Tahrir Square. And uh, a group of, of protesters were, were arrested, were detained, 
threatened, including a number of young women. They were taken by by the military, by the military police, uh, to the Egyptian Museum, which is right there on Tahrir Square, and they were allegedly uh, abused, tortured, and subject to, according to them, a forced virginity test to make sure uh, for the military to make sure that they were uh, still virgins uh, <laughs> for unknown reasons. So uh, Sisi at that time it caused a huge outcry in Egypt. People were very upset about this. And he actually called in to a radio program and said in his capacity as a member of the ruling Supreme Council for the Armed Forces at that time, he said yes. Uh, we did this. We did. The military did oversee these virginity tests. And it's very important because we need to make sure that, you know, these female protesters are not basically loose women. That was when he really came into the Egyptian consciousness. And I think a lot of pro-revolution Egyptians, pro-democracy Egyptians became pretty suspicious of him because at this moment, after this kind of incredible potential democratic breakthrough, you suddenly had this member of the ruling council saying things that sounded to a lot of people very retrograde and very concerning. Then, probably uh, like foreshadowing the human rights yeah, abuses to yeah, come exactly, under his exactly. uh, sort of pseudo-dictatorship. So, absolutely. Yeah. So he, he attracted uh, tension and controversy at the time. Then it got more interesting because when uh, Mohamed Morsi became president, Mohamed Morsi of, of the Brotherhood, of course, was elected in, in a runoff election in, in June uh, 2012 and uh, beating the former military figure and one of uh, Sisi's former military colleagues, Ahmed Shafiq, in a runoff. Uh, President Morsi, then President Morsi, actually uh, selected a few months after he came to office, soon after he uh, became president, he he elevated Sisi to become the defense minister, which is, of course, maybe after the president, the, the most important position in, in the Egyptian government. It's probably like a, a good strategy if you want to like buy in the opposition, right? Well, that you know, better to have your enemies in the tent. You know. Yes. And of course, at that time, it's very important to remember that the military and the Muslim Brotherhood were not enemies. They were actually, uh, could we say, um, formed a bit of an alliance against the revolutionaries, against the, the sort of secular pro-democracy liberal forces who had originated the, mm. the, re the revolution. And so at that time, uh, the military basically, according to many accounts, uh, believed that the Muslim Brotherhood, although the traditional historic antagonist, adversary of the Egyptian regime, could um, actually potentially be less threatening, less revolutionary, less demanding of a fundamental democratic overhaul than the uh, young pro-democracy uh, protesters who were not part of Islamist movements. And so the Muslim Brotherhood uh, formed a bit of a, a tacit uh, alliance of convenience with the ruling military. And at at that time, they seemed to uh, trust Abdel Fattah Sisi that he would, first of all, he, he, he allowed them to, to come to power. I mean, President Morsi was, by all accounts, freely elected, and the military recognized his victory and handed power to him uh, on, uh, I believe it was uh, June 30th, 2012, uh, ended their, their, their rule of Egypt, their brief but tumultuous rule of Egypt, and handed power to an elected Muslim Brotherhood president. So from uh, President Morsi's perspective, I guess, although now he seems quite naive and his advisors seem quite naive, but they really believe that Sisi was their ally. So, so what happened? Like, how did that alliance break and, and, and fracture to the point where you had, um, you know, Al-Sisi ordering the gunning down of Muslim Brotherhood people and their families in the streets? Well, 
We are still trying to piece together exactly what happened, and this will be the subject of many books and dissertations and, and articles for years to come. But So there's still some parts of the story that are not fully publicly known. But basically, in short, uh, Morsi uh, elevated Sisi, made him defense minister. And then once he was defense minister, uh, at first things were okay between the military and the Brotherhood. And then as Morsi's time in power, which was very brief as he continued in his first months, things became more and more tumultuous in Egypt, it became clear that the military's kind of also naive expectation that the Brotherhood would be competent uh, people to turn power over to and that they could return stability to Egypt, which was the military's main concern, was just stabilizing the country. It became clear that the Brotherhood were not up to the task. They were in over their head. There was a growing uh, discontent and instability. And then uh, there were certainly, in my view, parts of the Egyptian, as we might call it, deep state, old regime, who were not happy with the military's decision to let uh, the brother had come to power, and some of those parts of the old regime that were still in place, the police, the judiciary, and elements of the of the military, I believe, started to think that maybe it wasn't such a good idea to let the brotherhood be in power. So in a very short span of time, from, say, August 2012, when Morsi uh, appointed uh, a Sisi defense minister, and by the way, there were all these rumors at the time that Sisi was actually an Islamist sympathizer. Mm. And that, of course, turned out to be completely false. But this was also thought to be at the time that he was a, a natural sort of conservative ally for the Brotherhood. With just in a few months into Morsi's rule, when things were really very rocky, um, as, by the way, I believe would have been the case for any democratically elected civilian leader of Egypt, no matter what political uh, movement he came from. But it happened to be the Brotherhood. They were in over their head. It was very rocky. And then um, the military started having a lot of doubts. And things were becoming uh, very, very unstable, and there started to become this growing opposition to the Morsi government. Now, exactly what the military's role in the months leading up to the coup was in terms of fanning the flames of discontent, supporting those Egyptians who were starting to go out into the streets and demand that Morsi step down and uh, another election be called. That is where we still are, you know, there remains a lot of research yet to be done on that. But by any account, by May or June, Abdel Fattah Sisi and other members of the military leadership had basically turned against Morsi and uh, supported, if not encouraged, uh, these mass popular protests against his rule. And then, as often happens when you get the military leading the show, uh, many Egyptians, uh, unfortunately, in my view, were, were misled or believed wrongly that once the military had ousted Morsi, they would quickly turn the system back over to a newly elected democratic government of some other form. Well, as we know, that's not what happened. So that's how Sisi came to power. He led the military coup, and 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 by 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 all accounts, by there's absolutely no doubt that it was a military coup. Now, military coups can be very popular. Military coups can have wide public support. There's no doubt that a lot of Egyptians in June 2013 supported the military takeover, but it was a military-led ouster of an elected government. It wasn't. And, and, and it seems like very quickly upon taking power, uh, al-Sisi started um, attacking 
you know, Muslim Brotherhood. You know, there was the Rabah Square massacre. Sort of a, this is at least eight hundred people died in in just a space of a few hours. These were protesters camped out who were supporting uh, Morsi against the, the the coup, and it seems there was just this kind of constant and ongoing to this day perhaps retribution against the muslim brotherhood being perpetrated by al-sisi yes i mean i personally don't have enough uh, detailed insight into sisi's state of mind in uh, june and july and early august of 2013 uh, to know whether he was initially willing to oust morsi but maybe not uh, have this widespread repression against the Brotherhood. Uh, I personally believe that um, my, my speculation is that as soon as CC was basically de facto in charge, uh, he quickly realized that he would need to try to crush or eliminate the Brotherhood. Because, of course, when you come to power by a coup, it is often the case that you turn next to crush all of your opponents, uh, not just the people that you've ousted from power, but uh, but all opposition in order to stay in power. Because the way you have seized power is basically through um, you know a non-democratic process, and so the repression quickly followed, and it followed against the Brotherhood. You know, with with immediately. I mean, lots of Muslim Brotherhood leaders were arrested. Of course, President Morsi and his top aides were arrested. They remain, you know, in prison in prison today. They were kept, uh, Morsi was kept uh, incommunicado in an unknown location. There were widespread arrests. And then there started to be this violent crackdown as the Muslim Brotherhood, as one would expect, mobilized against the coup. And they mobilized in very large numbers in these uh, sit-ins in Cairo, in two squares in Cairo, Rabah and Anahta squares. And they held these week-long sit-ins in order to demand that that the military hand back power to what you know they believed was the legitimate leader of Egypt, uh, Mohammed Morsi. And so when the Brotherhood wouldn't back down, they tried to increase their numbers in these sit-ins. Uh, CC just decided to bring the hammer down. CC and and uh, and and the uh, Minister of Interior and and other top security officials. And of course, they they I think at that point it seems clear by August 2013 that there was to be no. They had decided there would be no accommodation with the Brotherhood, and they would try to basically crush the movement. And that is what has happened over the ensuing years uh, since CC has has been in this this position of power. So so there's been this sort of ongoing repression, as you describe, ever since LCC took power, um, crackdowns, violent um, you know, restrictions on speech and, and freedom of assembly and NGO laws and all these, you know, sort of tried and true methods in which a uh, authoritarian government tries to suppress dissent. Um, but you write recently in foreign policy that we're at this new inflection point right now for the LCC regime, and he is trying to consolidate power even further. Can you uh, explain what's going on, what the sort of constitutional amendments are that you cite as evidence um, of LCC trying to further consolidate power and further suppress dissent, and why um, right now is a good time to be paying attention to events in Egypt? Yes. Well, when uh, Sisi led the military ouster of uh, Morsi, it's important to remember that there were still a lot of Egyptians 
who, although very discontented with Muslim Brotherhood rule, still wanted a democratic transition in Egypt. They had been uh, heavily participating in the demonstrations to overthrow Mubarak, and they actually, there was very strong public support for a democratic transition. Uh, One, of course, they thought at that time without the Brotherhood, but some sort of other accommodation. They wanted the military to step back, and they wanted to have a civilian-led elected government, just not including the Brotherhood. And so in order to come to power, in order to legitimize the military takeover of the government and the incredibly harsh repression against many Egyptians, not just Islamists, that followed immediately after the coup, uh, Sisi's discourse at the time was, this was a move to restore democracy. This was a move to reset the transition, and we are now going to put Egypt on a proper democratic path. And at first, Sisi said, I'm not even going to be president. You know, there was this sort of acting figurehead civilian president, a former senior judge. And uh, Sisi said, oh, no, 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 I don't want power. Well, it turned out that that was completely false. And then when he ran for president, contrary to his original statements, he again tried to say, well, this is what the people demand. Sisi was actually fairly popular. If there was a lot of public support and adoration for him, they sort of, the military kind of tried to whip up this cult of personality around Sisi uh, in 2013, and it found some resonance among many Egyptians. But uh, then when Sisi uh, was elected president in a very skewed and unfair and unfree election, then he said, whoa, I'm not going to be like Mubarak, who stayed in power for 30 years. Uh, we had a revolution against Mubarak. Uh, he, he recognized the January 2011 revolution as such. And so I'm only going to rule for two terms. We have this new constitution that limits presidents only to eight years in power. And don't worry we're going to have a new Egypt. So the reason I mention this is because a few years back, when Sisi first became president, um, I and many Egyptians were very skeptical, but some people really thought he was sincere, that he didn't want to become a dictator, that he just was coming in to save Egypt at its moment of danger and protect Egypt from, quote-unquote, collapse, and uh, that, that the Muslim Brotherhood was, was, had nearly brought the country to its knees. That was, of course, exaggerated, but that was the discourse. And he said, you know, I'm just here for, for as long as the people want me and it's temporary. Well, it became very clear very early on that actually Sisi was not interested in that. And he really wanted to create a new authoritarian system, a new authoritarian project that would have continuity with the Mubarak's regime, but also be different and more repressive because in Sisi's view and many of his top military colleagues, they looked upon the 2011 uprising as a disaster in the sense that it was true popular mobilization for democratic change. He, he wanted to make sure that that would never happen again because the next target might be the military, first ousting Mubarak, then ousting Morsi. And so very soon on, you, saw, you see Sisi talking out of both sides of his mouth, continuing this rhetoric uh, for the international community and for some Egyptian audiences about restoring democracy to Egypt. And then you see through his actions, through a number of decree laws that he passed and then through many other pieces of legislation and through actions instituting this incredibly harsh and closed form of governance, basically mass arrests, 
um, abuse, torture, very harsh punishments about, against any kind of dissent, not just Muslim Brotherhood, but also people from the left of the political spectrum. And you see Sisi over the past uh, five years basically putting in place a much more authoritarian system than what Mubarak had, which was already pretty bad. So why is he doing this? Why is he now taking this extra step of trying to change the Constitution? That is a great question. Well, I mean, it seems like like everything you've described, it all seems like, you know, it's part of like the authoritarian playbook and, and you know, changing the Constitution, um, you know, forcing through amendments to the Constitution. It's just like, you know, the logical next step. Yes, it is part of the authoritarian playbook. But I think what is particularly notable about these proposed constitutional amendments that CC is trying to ram through, they're notable for two reasons. First of all, they contradict directly CeCe's initial promises for several years about what kind of leadership he was going to provide Egypt and how different he was going to be than Mubarak and then more than Morsi. So they fly in the face of his earlier uh, statements. And I know that this is typical for an authoritarian leader. But in the case of CeCe, when he seized power, when he came to power, it was just two, two and a half years after this o- uprising against Mubarak. And there was still a lot of political ferment and some hopes for democracy among some Egyptians. Uh, Maybe many people were getting very tired of the upheaval, but he really came to power in a very different context. And so there was a certain kind of expectation initially to legitimize himself that he had to say that he was not going to return uh, Egypt to authoritarian rule. Of course, that's exactly what he did, as I said, and he used all kinds of justifications, security threats, terrorism, Muslim Brotherhood, so on and so forth. But in the recent years, it's become evident that what Sisi is trying to do is, um, I mean, I'm sure he does care about countering terrorism as, as, as any leader would and providing security, but that really what he wants to do is create a new political system that will ensure his grip on power and keep him ruling Egypt for the foreseeable future. And that is different than his initial project, where definitely he was trying to restore authoritarian rule, but he pledged, he promised on many occasions that he personally would only stay in power for eight years. So, and so what... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so no, well, it just it sounds like you know he's just like putting through these changes to ensure that he's sort of dictator for life, um, you know, akin to uh, to a Hosni Mubarak um, and other leaders around the world. But as you write, one real profound problem with this, other than just the idea of having a dictator for life, is that it increases the likelihood of yes. sort of violent scenarios from befalling Egypt. Um, there's lots of political science, as you say, to suggest that leaders who have these sort of personal brands attached to them are far more likely to befall their country into civil war than other sort of arrangements. Yes, or if not civil war, then violent uh, unrest. So basically, it's it's the assessment of, of me and my co-author, Andrew Miller, in this foreign policy article that we wrote that what Sisi is trying to create, particularly visible through these constitutional amendments, is to create not just an authoritarian system, he's already done that, but to create a personalized dictatorship that will solidify and concentrate power in him, so in which... Uh, 
he his power and his ability to stay in, in office will be unlimited and he will subordinate uh, other parts of the government under his power even more and basically concentrate power in his hands. And so we point out that, well, in our view, all authoritarianism is, is ultimately bad and unproductive for those societies that live under that political system, that this type of personalized dictatorship that we believe that Sisi is trying to move Egypt toward. We do not think that Egypt is there yet, but we believe that especially with these constitutional amendments that would extend his time and power to uh, possibly as long as uh 2034, he would be 80, which was the which is the same age, you know, Mubarak was. Um, he would be ruling for for basically there would be no chance for Egyptians in any practical way to choose another leader. Um, we believe that through through that measure, that's the real uh, goal behind these constitutional amendments is to ensure that Sisi himself can stay in power for the foreseeable future, not just to hand power to another authoritarian leader, but to keep it with him. And he also is attempting through these constitutional amendments to tighten his grip, the president's grip on the judiciary, which has never been an independent branch of government in Egypt. But over history, uh, certainly in modern Egypt, there have been pockets of independence within the judiciary and some independent judges. Sisi has steadily been trying to erode that so that the executive branch and the presidency can dominate the judicial branch, for example. So it's our assessment that the type of political system that Sisi is creating isn't your garden variety authoritarian rule. It really is a dictatorship around him. And according to many previous examples, including in his own region with uh, Gaddafi, Bashar al-Assad, Saddam Hussein, that when you have these systems where power is concentrated in one person and his immediate family members, potentially, that that can often, it doesn't always, but it can set up a situation where because there are no outlets for participation, no outlets for citizens to uh, try to affect the policies and decisions of their government or choose their leaders or change their leaders, there's no space for basically anything that that ultimately can create a kind of pressure cooker in which at some point, it is very possible that discontent uh, will express itself in a very violent and unstable way. So in, yeah. our, last, in, in our last minute, what can be done to uh, prevent that outcome? What can the international community uh, do to, to try to prevent that? Because in our view, the political uh, system, the political trajectory that Abdel Fattah Sisi is taking Egypt on puts in a lot of... Uh, landmines for Egyptian stability over the medium term. And actually, because Egypt remains a very important country to Europe and to the United States and to other countries, we think that it is imperative uh, for the United States and for European countries in particular to express to Sisi that we think that he is not taking Egypt in a good direction, that we do not endorse this power grab, that we think it is ultimately against the interests of Egypt and uh, against uh, Egypt's long-term stability and reaching its full potential as a very important country of more than 100 million people, the most populous country in the Arab world, located in a key strategic location uh, next to Israel with the Suez Canal on the African continent, on the 
the Mediterranean, uh, right near Europe, that we think that CC is planting the seeds of future violent unrest and instability. And therefore, as I said, is it is incumbent upon Egypt's allies and partners to say to CC, we don't think you're taking Egypt in the right direction, and we do not endorse this power grab, and we advise you against it. Well, Amy, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful, and um, it's good to, to shine a spotlight on this. I, this was not something that I realized was ongoing, so thank you. Thank you so much. All right, big thank you to Amy. That was very helpful. You know, we had this conversation in which there were like rumors swirling that Al-Sisi was to come to Washington, D.C. in the near future. And lo and behold, the day I recorded this intro, it was announced by the White House that he was coming on April 9th. So this episode, as I said, did a really good job of setting the scene for that Trump Al-Sisi visit. Visit. All right, please become a premium subscriber. Uh, I'm serious. It really does help keep the lights on around here. It helps um, cover some of the costs associated with creating this podcast twice a week, every week. And so thank you. Thank you in advance. And just follow the links in the description field of this episode or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to become a premium subscriber. Thank you. I'll see you next time. Bye.